Welcome everyone back to another episode of Shares Not Shoes, an insider's guide to careers in finance. I'm your host, Camilla Love, founder of F3 Future Females in Finance. Shares Not Shoes is a podcast whereby I interview some of my favorite people, all with one thing in common. They work in finance. We lift the lid on who they are, how they came into a career in finance, and arm you with some knowledge about why a career in finance could be a good fit for you. I will promise that all my guests will share some amazing personal stories, will be open and honest, and will inspire you. So, let's go. Welcome back to the next episode of Shares Not Shoes, an insider's guide to careers in finance. I'm your host, Camilla Love, founder of F3 Future Females in Finance. Shares Not Shoes is a podcast where I interview some of my favorite people, definitely one today, all with one thing in common, they all work in finance. We lift the lid on who they are, how they came into a career in finance, and arm you with some knowledge about why a career in finance could be a great fit for you. I will promise you that you will get out from my guests some amazing personal stories. They will be open and honest and definitely will inspire you. So let's give it a go today. Please welcome the one and only Jessica Melvilles to the studio. Jess works at Australian Super and is the Senior Manager of Portfolio Strategy Dash Mid Risk. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, today on this episode. It's lovely to see you. Thanks, Cam. It's great to be here and thanks for having me on the show. Jess brand new role at Aussie Super. That's I'm so super excited for you, but you already know that. Um, you, I've just mentioned your title. What does it actually mean? What does mid-risk actually mean? Can you tell me a little bit what it is like a day in the life for you uh, managing the mid-risk portfolio at a nearly $200 billion superannuation fund, right? Yeah, that's right. So mid-risk often raises eyebrows amongst people when I tell them this is what I'm focused on. Not a lot of science around it. Essentially, high risk is equities, including private equity. Then low risk is fixed income and cash and currency for us. So mid-risk is the stuff that is not low risk and not high risk. Everything so in the middle. Everything in the middle. Um, so for us, that means infrastructure, property and credit. So really interesting part of the world. Um, lots of, lots of interesting work being done. A lot of assets that have been bought and, and, you know, we're continuing to, to look for opportunities in this space. My role is not to go out and find those assets and opportunities. We've got some, some great people, about 40 people in that team in Australia and, um, around the world that are looking for those opportunities. Uh, portfolio strategy is really about thinking about the portfolio construction of how those assets and how those investments come together to make a coherent portfolio that's appropriately diversified and ultimately is on track to meet objectives for our members. Who You mentioned members and they're a really important part of you know what super does for you know a lot of people in the Australian community. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about who your members or in other words clients yeah. are. So we are lucky enough to manage superannuation assets for about two and a half million members around Australia. So the the broad headline stat is that one in ten Australians have their superannuation with Australian Super. So that's that's very exciting. It's it's a real privilege to be to be to sort of have that responsibility. Um, our members are 
you know, everyday Australians who are, you know, have you know, their their savings allocated to to superannuation. We're not sort of um, tied to any particular industry. You know, our heritage is in financial services uh, members, but we're actually, you know, very broadly diversified in terms of our, our member base. So what does it mean? Essentially, you know, a lot of people don't don't sort of think about this part of their salary, but, you know, the government had mandated about 20 or 30 years ago that you know, about 10% of your your salary sh- should be compulsorily set aside for, you know, that day that comes where you ultimately retire. And that's, you know, that's something that not a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about, especially young people, because when, you know, when you're young and Retirement's you get your first so job, far off. it's a long way away. And, you know, 10% of your salary is not a huge amount. So you, you tend to forget about it. And, you know, a lot of people, sadly enough, don't know where that, where that money is going. Um, sometimes you'll have an account that's set up that's called a default account and it gets sort of chosen by your employer and I think you know your employers do have a lot of responsibility in choosing that default but then that that also goes down to you know the default portfolio that um, that, that that gets sort of set into so by that I mean that you know there's some parameters that say that look for this person, we're going to put it into a certain amount of shares, a certain amount of property, a certain amount of fixed income. And in, in the long run, that should get them to what the objective is, which is to give you enough money to retire on. Why is it important today for the people listening to actually engage in their superannuation? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, if I think about when I first started working, you know, the excitement of getting your first job and, you know, signing all that paperwork, um, you know, you're thinking about what bank account you pay your, you have your salary paid into. And most people don't think a lot about this, but there's, there's a form that you fill out which says, you know, this is where I want my superannuation paid into. And young people, don't think a lot about this because it's a very small part of your salary. It's about 10% of your salary that gets set aside by your employer. You don't get to touch it and it gets paid into a superannuation account. And the idea is that this is basically your savings that you're chipping away, adding into, or your employer is doing it on your behalf that is ultimately going to provide you with your your sort of retirement income when you finally retire. But when you're young and you're in your 20s, retirement is nearly 50 years away for you. So it's it's easy to, to forget about it and, and not engage with it. So if you were setting out on your first job today and you have, you know, put down the superannuation fund, how what what tips would you give to people to um, understand a little bit more about where their, you know, their retirement dollar is going to? Yeah, I would be you know, as with anything, every every service and every product that we buy these days, you can, you know, there's umpteenth reviews and, and sites where you can go and do research on what you're buying or what service it is that you're getting and is it the best service and what do other people think about it. I think superannuation needs to be just as, just as front of mind for people because it's something that you're in for the long haul, but you know, small differences like, you know, performance in the short term, you might think, oh, it's just 1% here and there. But when you compound that out over many decades, that will be, you know, that can lead to a very different set of outcomes. Performance is one thing. Fees is another thing. Again, a couple of basis points of fee differential 
can lead to, you know, very different outcomes over the long term. And ultimately, as anything, as with anything else that we buy in this day and age, it's not just about the cheapest and it's not just about, um, you know, the, the, the highest performing fund. It's ultimately a trade off between, you know, whether you think this is going to be the right provider for, for you to, to look after your superannuation savings over the long term and making an informed decision. So just changing tack slightly, mm. I love your story, which is the reason why you're here today. Now, your first degree is actually has nothing to do with finance. And I just love it because it's like poles apart and I will let everybody understand your story. But, you know, what did you do? Why did you, how did you get into finance and, mm. and, and why do you love it? Absolutely. It's a, it's a really interesting journey. And in many ways, I would describe myself as an accidental investment professional. Um, so, but you know, I, I often take a step back and think, why am I here? And how did I get here? So as you say, I did have an unusual entry path into finance. My first degree was in optometry, of all things. And, you know, I often reflect on why did I choose optometry? I think that, you know, in many ways, we're all products of the era that we grew up in. And, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s where unemployment was a thing. It was. Um, it was a big thing. We, you know, we had um, unemployment that, you know, at times was, at 10% or more. And so I guess I didn't realise it at the time, but I thought long and hard and I valued job security. Mm-hmm. All I wanted was a career that, you know, a degree that got me a job, that kept me in a job, that wouldn't go out of flavour, wouldn't, would never really reduce in demand. So, you know, I was drawn to something in the, the health sector. Job security aside, I also liked working with people and I liked the technical aspect of, of optometry. But I guess when I actually did the degree and got out into the workforce and worked as an optometrist, I think there were a couple of things that led to a certain amount of disillusion. I probably undervalued how much I enjoy a dynamic environment. And optometry is very staid. It's very somewhat repetitive and you get to meet with people and work with people, but it's, it's a very very sort of superficial interaction. You, you spend 20 minutes with them, you diagnose them, you, you know, prescribe treatment and, you know, off they go and they come back in two years' time. I think the other element that was missing for me was just that broader sense of purpose. So you're working with people one-to-one, helping them with a very small subset of, um, you know, their overall problems and, and their overall lives, but it kind of just felt like it was missing that broader sense of purpose. So... You know, I I got talking to a couple of friends and, you know, had one friend in particular who worked in stockbroking and was telling me, you know, all the stuff that he did in his day-to-day job, which was, you know, working with, you know, talking to senior management at companies and, you know, trying to then form a view as to whether that's that company was going to be successful in meeting its objectives or otherwise, and then making recommendations to people as to whether they should invest in that company or not. And I thought, gosh, that sounds really interesting because it has that technical aspect, it has that analytical aspect, but it also has that connection with the you know the broader world, society, the economy, and then it kind of started to get me involved in investment. Mm-hmm. So... You know, fast track, I, I started to dabble in a little bit of postgrad study in finance and found that I like absolutely loved it and, you know, then meandered my way into, into finance. 
So a couple of reflections on that as I look back on it and, you know, in many ways timing is everything. Yeah, this is back in the the early 2000s when the stock market was booming and the finance industry had a real shortage of talent. Mm -hmm. So they were happy to take anyone who wanted to work in the industry. Even an optometrist. Even an optometrist. (laughs) I think the recruiter said to me, do you have a degree? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, cool, I don't care what it's in. We just need someone. (laughs) Um, That was, you know, ironically that was in stockbroking, in retail stockbroking, and I think, you know, that says a lot about where that industry was at the time. Very different now. Um, Very different now and, you know, very, very much, much more focused on having the right um, qualifications and appropriately credentialed people giving advice. But, you know, if I think about, you know, if I had stayed longer in optometry and, you know, waited to make that move, look, the, the finance industry and, and the, the job market really shifted mm. significantly. Um, so I think that it would have been much more difficult to, to get that first step in, in the finance industry. I think that it's also about taking a bit of a risk. I think a lot of people said to me at the time, that's a huge risk to take to, you know, turn your back on an optometry career and, you know, get your, this entry-level job in, in finance but I never really looked at it that way. Um, you know, optometry was something I could always come back to. Like but I considering said. you were, you know, you were, you know, wanted a stable job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought of it, you know, in that respect, optometry ultimately underwrote my career in finance. Mm. It gave me that, you know, that ability to take that risk, to jump off that cliff into the world of finance. And if it failed miserably, then I could always go crawling back, back to an looking opt- at job in optometry. <laughs> um, but, you know, in many ways that also spurred me on because, you know, I knew that I didn't love the job in optometry, that I was, you know, feeling stale and unstimulated. So that really spurred the ambition and the desire to make the role, the work in finance actually work out and be successful. So do you find that now in your day-to-day role you're um, surrounded by people who are highly intelligent and people who are, you know, interesting and pushing the boundaries and want finance, you know, can do for good. How, like, how do you get your stimulation in your, in your current role, given given your views on, you know, what happened in your original role and as an optometrist? Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't understate that optometry is filled with some very smart people as no, well. Sure. So in case there are any optometrists <laughs> out there that are thinking, um, you know, what, what do I think about the world of optometry? Look, very, very smart people who are just um, fascinated with you know, the, the minutia of, you know, how to improve vision, how to get earlier diagnosis and earlier detection. But for me, that, that just wasn't for me. As you say, I am surrounded by highly intelligent people um, who are driven to really push the boundaries of, you know, what what investment can do, not just for our members in generating financial returns, but also thinking about how superannuation can use its influence to create a better world. Ultimately, superannuation is about, you know, retirement outcomes for people, but it's not just about the financial outcome. It's also about creating a world that is worth, you know, worth living in um, when we finally get to that retirement So would you say is that is that the purpose? Is that your, I mean, everyone looks for a good purpose in their in their role. Is that your purpose? Yeah, that is ultimately being part of something that is bigger than me and bigger, you know, in many ways bigger than my team or the organisation I work for. It's ultimately about, you know, that feel-good factor of walking down the street and going, look, I'm in many ways, I'm probably touching 
a lot of the people that I walk past and it, you know, it's not about me. It's not about my ego or, you know, me feeling like I've, I've singly made their, their retirement, a, you know, a bigger help. place, but I've helped. Um, but just knowing that, you know, I've probably had a small part to play in, in just their retirement outcomes and also creating a better society. I think that's, that's very powerful. What's Aussie Super doing at the moment to create a better society? I mean, I mean, as I said in the beginning, it's nearly a $200 billion fund. You know, there's a lot of capital to deploy to actually, you know, not only provide everyone's better retirement outcomes, as you said, but also make a better society. Where, what are you seeing in Aussie Super that they, they are showing that? Aussie Super is a, is a really interesting place because it is so big. Um, so you started off with nearly $200 billion in assets, but it's also a really big and broad team that touches um, investments and assets around the world in, in so many different ways. The way that our, our team in mid-risk is thinking about that is that, you know, we're looking at building, we invest in infrastructure and property. So, you know, the, the key way that we influence the world that we live in is, you know, build, building that infrastructure, investing in the, you know, in the toll roads, in the, the ports. Um, airports are probably not very topical right, not right now, now, but, um, you know, we, those are the types of assets that we're building just to make you know, that, that's essential infrastructure that impacts everyone's lives. Property, you know, it's about the the offices that, that we work in ultimately. But if you sort of step that up a little bit more and, and think about what Aussie Super is doing at a higher level, you know, we have a stewardship team that is really thinking across the, the entire gamut of our assets and thinking about, well, how can we be, you know, nudging um, the stewards of our assets, company management, the managers through which we invest to be investing um, in a manner that's, a, that's aligned with the way that we think will lead to, to stronger outcomes for, for our members and also the, the society at large. Great. Uh, such wonderful purpose. And, you know, we touch on this a lot in our podcast that, that the capital that is deployed can actually go to, to, to create better things. Now, prior to Aussie Super, you were an asset consultant. Mm-hmm. Tell me what they do and what does it mean? Yeah, asset consulting was, you know, a really big part of my career. But in many ways, I think it disguises that, you know, I didn't have a straight line career within asset consulting. And I think this is the, you know, I described my career as meandering. I sort of meandered my way through asset consulting as well. So let's start off with what do asset consultants do? Asset consultants are ultimately advisors to institutional investors like super funds, sovereign wealth funds, wealth managers, insurers use asset consultants as well. They're ultimately used for for technical expertise to complement an internal investment team, you know, whether that's to provide advice on asset allocation or to recommend individual asset managers that can be utilised. That, that's ultimately the, the bread and butter of an asset consultant. They also do things like providing advice on governance. Mm-hmm. So how should an, organiza- an investment organisation be structured to, to most effectively make in, like good investment decisions and how should those, that decision-making be parceled out across the organisation so that decisions can be made by the right people at the right time. So my career in, in asset consulting spanned 
you know, effectively the gamut of all the functions that, that I've described there. I started my career in manager research, focusing on Australian equities. Uh, we first met there. That's where we first <laughs> met. Um, Long time ago, but goodness, I can all, I can actually almost remember the, the exact time that we <laughs> that we met. Um, but, you know, I started off in, in Australian equities and that was just, for me, the best job in the world because, you know, there are hundreds of Australian equity managers. Only one, Camilla Love. Yeah, true. Um, oh, there is two, but there's the, only the original. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was that was just such a great training ground to to talk to some really interesting and intelligent and capable investors that, that work in the Australian equity universe and ask them my stupid questions about, you know, how do you Those generate returns? Um, and I, I hopefully my questions became less silly along the way, <laughs> but it was such a great training ground and, and really interesting, not just to build the, the technical capability, but also to understand the importance of building relationships mm, in the industry. Important. Ultimately, we're all people trying to do the best that we can do, the best for, for our investors. So there are no silly people or unintelligent people in the finance industry, but it's just about, you know, making sense for, you know, how everyone works, comes together to, to generate good outcomes for, for members. My career then broadened. Um, so, you know, I would have happily stayed in Australian equities for all my life, but I think about five years Bigger into the journey, I broadened out into to fixed income, into real assets, multi-asset, and, you know, just covered a whole lot of different asset classes. And I thought, gosh, this is, you know, this is the ultimate being, you know, a, you know, a senior manager researcher that had so much breadth. Um, and I thought that was, that's like kind of, you know, my career high. But I got the opportunity to then start to focus on actually providing that advice directly to the clients. Um, and that was that was quite a, you know, that felt like a little bit of a sort of a, a right turn um, that sort of took me away from from being the, the subject matter expert on managers and on asset classes and into a really uncomfortable space where I had to be a bit of a generalist and, and you know, be prepared for any question that, that came my way. It also gave me the opportunity to start to specialise a bit in investment governance and broader organisational strategy. And so we were working with big, big institutional investors to, to sort of talk to them about how they ultimately structured their, whether it's their business strategy or their, their product strategy to, to best deliver on the investment um, objectives that they've promised to, to their clients. And, you know, it felt really uncomfortable at the time. It felt but like- But that's always a growth opportunity where you feel uncomfortable and you don't know whether you're sure or you're doing yeah, anything right. You're so true. And I, I think I actually remember talking to you at the time for advice on, you know, should I should I do this? Should I, am I better off staying where I am or I'm comfortable and, you know, I'm doing really well. Take and, a risk, Jeff. Yes. And I think your advice was to take that risk. And, you know, sure enough, I jumped off that cliff. And you know, I, looking back on it, it- it felt like I was about to jump off a cliff, but ultimately it wasn't like that at all. Just a step. It was just a step. And, you know, ultimately you draw down on the knowledge that you've built over the years. So my expertise was understanding how asset management businesses structured themselves to deliver an investment objective. But 
yeah, that was all different context, but ultimately I was providing advice to investment organisations that were ultimately trying to structure themselves ultimately to deliver an investment objective. So different context, but it was more advising on it Mm -hmm. rather than analysing whether something was good or not. So, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, that was absolutely the the right thing for me to do at the time and I'm I'm so glad I did it and I'm also glad that I went to you for advice. (laughs) (laughs) Shucks. Oh, yeah. When you're very senior and very, like, popular and famous, (laughs) don't forget the small people. Now, there's a lot of skills. I mean, people go to university and, you know, do their HSC and go to school school, and they learn what we call hard hard skills, right? You know, maths and, you know, be able to do the research and be able to put everything together. Yeah. But you've mentioned a few times today about the importance of relationships in finance mm. and the people skills and the communication skills. Tell me why that is important to your role and why that's important for someone who's thinking about taking a career in finance today? Yeah, that's, um, I mean, that was a learning that I had quite early on. Working in manager research where you're, you're working with asset managers, you, you, there is a risk that you think that it's all about the technical it's all about, you know, have they generated a strong return? Do you think they're going to continue to generate a strong return? And if you can negotiate that at the right fee point, then you're away and that gives you the right answer. The world of finance and investing is much more nuanced than that. Mm. Um, ultimately, it is a human capital industry. Very much so. Investors are humans, managers are humans, and the people that invest with them are humans. And so that that gives rise to just the importance of understanding that that softer element of relationships, whether that's within a team. So when you're looking at an investment manager and un- trying to understand you know, how much of it is the portfolio manager's insights versus his, his group of analysts, his or her group of analysts um, generating the insights, what's actually driving those returns. That's really important. Understanding how that interacts with their business structure and the incentives that drive them to either focus on the long-term, the short-term, focus on overall portfolio objectives versus their individual sectors, for example. But then if you zoom out a little bit, it's also about you know, how a superannuation fund like Australian Super, for example, would invest with a manager or with an asset. Why do some funds get more opportunities than others? How much of that is relationship driven? I think that is, it's a really interesting side of it. And it kind of, it lends itself nicely to, I guess, to the argument that the more experience you have, um, and the more people that you have with that experience, then you know the more likely you are to be able to access certain opportunities. So yeah, it's it's super important. It's probably something that doesn't get emphasised enough at university, and it's not learnt. Like people, sorry, people people think it's innate, mm-hmm. like, but actually, it's it's something that you actually have to practice at often. Yes, yes, absolutely. And my my first boss in in asset consulting used to used to really sort of preach this to me. You know, he was a guy with forty odd years of experience, and you know, I would sit there and you know do all my analysis and go, look, I think I've got the right answer, and he would just look at me and go, no. No, you miss you miss the point here that this person will never work with this person and so therefore 
that recommendation is never going to get up. And, you know, it's really, it, it's one of those things that you, you just have to chip away at and, you know, you get that, you learn that through, you know, lots of lots of conversations and, and learning from mentors, I would say. So I can I tell you that I remember years ago when you were delivering me some bad news <laughs> and you were, you were essentially saying, Camilla, you know, the fund that you re- are representing isn't quite you know, enough for us right now. And I think that if you didn't deliver that in the way that you did at the time, we probably still, we wouldn't be sitting here today. So what I'm trying to say is that that, that those, those skills that are, you know, really good communication skills and, and mm. the ability to work with people and understanding that it is a relationship that, you know, that finance is a, like a, it's a small country town. Like <laughs> everyone knows everybody else you know, fostering those relationships over time and even when you're delivering news that might not be what you want to hear, right, that you can still push through that and have a better relationship at the end. And- absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I'm not sure I remember that exact conversation. <laughs> I never do. delivered you bad news. <laughs> but it is important because it is such a small industry and, as you say, like the fund that you represent today may not be the fund that you represent in in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time. And, you know, what might not be the right opportunity for me today might be exactly the opportunity I want to be pursuing in the future. So, yeah, the world's too small to, to make Way enemies. too small. What skills do you think are actually overrated in finance today? It's it's a tricky question. A lot of people, I think the conversation these days has has been to to what you were alluding to before that you know technical skills hard skills are overrated and soft skills are you know where we need to be sort of focused on i wouldn't want to underestimate the importance of hard skills and technical skills but i think it is overemphasized the extent to which you need to continuously develop those. So I think that in the first phase of your career, it is all about, um, you know, really betting down the right technical base. Um, and, you know, we call that the first five or five-ish years of, of mm-hmm. your career. But then it is much more about building those relationships, building the communication skills, building the influencing skills to be able to to get your message across, to convince people to to take your recommendation, to convince an IC to approve, you know, a strategy that you want to to, to build within your your portfolio. But I think I'd also say that the extent to which the two are mutually exclusive is probably overrated. So, you know, it's not always going to be sequential that you build hard skills and then soft skills. I think a lot of people, and you're maybe more, there are people in the world that have had more straight line careers where they've been able to just do the hard skills and then the soft skills and been incredibly successful. I think that when I, when I look at the careers that I think my children are going to have, mm. and I reflected on this when I was you know, changing careers from optometry into finance. At the time, the stat was that the the average 18-year-old could expect to have three distinct career paths in their lives. I'm sure that when you fast forward a couple of decades, that's it's not three, it's probably five or seven now. But the, you know, to be open-minded to building new hard skills at any point in your career is is really important because it allows you that that flexibility to say actually you know what I've got today is is relevant but I just need to add a few 
relevant skills? So I talk a lot about personally because I love it, lifelong learning. So is this what you're trying to get at? So being really open at actually going back to the drawing board, being clear about what you do and don't know where you think the skills are going to come in the future? Absolutely. Uh, And I think that COVID was, uh, you know, a really – interesting inflection point in that so much learning went to online format. So like so much learning just became so immediately accessible to us um, that there's no reason to say that you need to have every skill set in your toolkit from the moment you graduate or five years into your career. It's about saying, right, at this juncture, I have this set of skills and it's going to get me to, you know, into, it's going to get me for, through for the next five years. And then at some point I might say, actually, this is not the right trajectory for me. I'm going to change tack. I'm going to go and round out and get a few more of those hard skills. And then I'm going to carry on in a different trajectory. I think it's it's a really great mindset to have, to be, you know, open and sort of malleable in your skill set. I think it's really important. Yeah. Now, I ask this to every uh, one of my guests is is what was the best piece of career advice that you've been given and why did this impact you so much? The best piece of career advice I had was around the time that I was think moving from manager research into sort of more of a client-facing role. Um, and I was saying I was a little bit on the fence because I thought, gosh, I, I need to know more of the technical stuff. I've, I've done this, you know, this handful of asset classes, but I need to know more. I want to know more asset classes. I want to, you know, know more on the technical side. And the best career advice that they that I got at the time was, you have so much technical skill set. You've got more than a lot of people in this industry. You don't need any more of that. You kind of overweight that skill set and you need to, you'll actually get more out of taking a leap and actually applying a lot of the the softer skills, the relationship building skills, the advising skills, the influencing skills. You will get more out of that that part of your, your career journey than doing any number more asset classes. And I think that, you know, I don't know that this is a a female thing, but I think it's applicable to to anyone that you sort of think, gosh, I'm on this trajectory of building out a technical skill set. I need, I don't know when I'll be finished, but I know I'm not there yet. Mm -hmm. And there's never an end. It's a never ending journey, right? But actually sometimes you'll get more benefit and bang for buck by just broadening rather than Mm. deepening. So, the way it was described to me is just thinking about your skill set as a T-shape um, and you know, thinking about as an individual, how much you learn is that deep, specific technical knowledge, which is that like the the vertical part of the T. And then as you become more senior in that, you've got those technical, you know, asset class specific or, you know, technical expertise under your belt, then thinking about broadening that skill set and that just makes you a more well-rounded individual. So I thought that was really helpful advice. That's really important, particularly when, you know, if you're starting out on your career and you're so embedded, your mind is all in the technical piece Mm. to actually think, well, okay, in five, six, seven, ten years' time I need to to think about – you know, non-technical related stuff, you know, adding the art and the science is the way that I put it together, right? So the science is the technical part, the art is the soft skills and, you know, making it all honed together nicely. Mm. um, I think that's, that's really important. 
Now, at the end of each episode, we're going to do this quick fire, got to answer, you know, the question with the first thing, what you've got. So you've got to, so I'm going to throw a few questions out there. First thing in your mind, you just got to, you got to throw it out. Sure. Okay. Tell me about something that most people don't know about you. Well, usually I throw out at this point that I was an optometrist. Um, <laughs> Everybody knows that now. We started with that. Um, I was a ballerina for 16 years. Oh, get out. How's that? I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. On my bucket list is? Oh, goodness. To take my kids to Disneyland. Oh, um, me too. Yeah. And now it feels like more of a bucket list than a, <laughs> a realistic. <laughs> indeed, indeed. If you had to invite anyone alive or dead to dinner, who would it be and why? Queen Victoria. Why? Because I think that she's such a she's such an amazing female role model. She was very, you know, very flawed, but you know, can you imagine being 19 years old and having the the British Empire as your responsibility? And I just think that she had such an interesting life. And she was very forward-thinking for her times and yeah. her gender in that role. Yeah. I think it's a I mean that's a really good And point. she was also a shorty like me, so <gasps> There you Love go. Those people. <laughs> Best finance book you've ever read? Not really a finance book, but I came across it through the industry. It's called There Is No Plan B by Mike Berners-Lee, and it's all about putting some science around um, this phenomenon of climate change. Mm, that's good. We've, we've, a lot of our episodes we talk about climate change, mm. so that's really interesting. How would your friends describe you? Oh, I love this one because it's never how I would describe myself. <laughs> um, oh, goodness. They would describe me as dynamic and they would probably describe me as an extrovert, which I always find interesting because I just never would think of myself as an extrovert. But um, I don't know. You'd have to ask them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, could, I can see you as both, really. Mm. I can definitely see you as both. Summer, winter, autumn or spring? Summer for sure, definitely. Love the energy of those long, long days and just, yeah, sunshine all the way. At the moment, I have FOMO for? Oh, overseas travel. No, oh, me too. Uh, it's, um, yeah, I never thought I would miss it. Um, I did a lot of work travel before COVID. You know, didn't love it or hate it, but, yeah, just – the ability to travel and connect with global colleagues and global peers, as well as just being able to take the family for an overseas holiday. So, yeah. What weird thing do you have in your handbag right now? What's Maybe it's misplaced. Well, I've got a pair of jazz shoes. Jazz shoes? In my bag. I told you that, you know, no one knows that I'm, I used to be a ballerina, but I just joined up to an adult's jazz class. So, Did you? Yep, there you go. <laughs> Gosh, I have... Yeah, mental scars after jazz ballet when I was about eight. <laughs> <laughs> if you were stranded on a desert island, what two things would you take with you? A book and something to play podcasts through. This is my my thing of late, listening to, to podcasts. So, yeah, ironic that I'm on a podcast now. Correct. <laughs> Complete this sentence. A career in finance is? So rewarding on so many different levels. That's great, so pe- great people, just stuff that keeps you interested and stimulated, um, but just the opportunity to meet with some amazing people. I think that's just the most ultimate 
ending point on our this podcast has gone so fast today so um Jess you know I love you we have been you know working in the industry together for a long time and um it's been a real pleasure to have you on our podcast today thank you for being so open and and you know understanding and you know real with our listeners so we appreciate that and um I love the fact that you know I love your story the fact that you trained as an optometrist I mean like seriously I mean the fact that it all the worlds align and um you know probably 20 years ago we were never meant to meet but somehow we the the world got you into finance which I love and you know the fact that you were good to you know you have the ability to to pivot and change and you know your openness on you know your career and learning I think that's um fabulous so thank you for joining us on Shares Not Shoes. My pleasure, Cam, and the admiration is mutual. I've I've admired all the 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 really interesting and and wonderful things that you've done for the industry and particularly for for people who are looking at joining the industry. I think that if I'd had the opportunity to understand a bit more about the finance industry when I was first picking my my degree, look life would have been just really different. So I, I just really commend you on on such a wonderful effort. Thank you, Jess. And uh, for more information on our guests, just like Jess, um, on Shares Not Shoes and further episodes, you can head to sharesnotshoes.com. And for more information on F3, uh, Future Females in Finance, head to f3.com.au. So thank you, Jess, again, and um, I look forward to joining um, you all next episode when we continue to interview some of my favourite people uh, in finance and you know, allow them to give you the inside scoop on what different careers in finance look like. So, um, see you later. You know, the information that is in this podcast, we always talk about finance in this podcast, but it's not financial advice. It's actually really careers advice. If you really want financial advice, I recommend that you speak to a financial planner um, or a broker and um, work out your own personal circumstances with that. But this is all about careers advice and how um, finance will be a fabulous career for you.